This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, welcome to the third installment of the Spring 2017 UC Santa Barbara Innovator Stories. We're rebranding the series to call it Innovator Stories, and it's where innovators create, who have created something from nothing come to tell us how they did it. I'm extremely happy to have Doug Otto here with us today. Doug is the uh, founder and former CEO and chairman of Deckers. Doug was gracious enough to speak in my class in 2009. I've had literally hundreds of people that have spoken in my various classes over the last uh, 10 plus years, and Doug's talk was one of my favorites. And I, I, He lives in Australia, so it's difficult for him to come speak in the class, but we've worked um, for a while now, try to do something remote, or maybe when he was traveling to Santa Barbara, and we finally were able to get it um, to work, to where he is in Australia, giving us graciously of his time, and we're able to um, interact with him in real time here in Santa Barbara. So I'm very happy that we were able to, to get it done. As I mentioned, Doug co-founded Deckers, and he did that in 1973 in a garage in Goleta, California, which is right here, um, adjacent to Isla Vista, where we are right now. Doug served as an executive officer, of course, of the company, as well as director from the company's inception all the way up through April 2005. And, you know, he had the role of CEO from 82 to 2005. He was the chairman of the board for a while, obviously an integral part of the company that he co-founded. For those of you who don't know, Decker's uh, portfolio includes some incredible brands, Ugg, Teva, Sanuk, Hoka, Anu, and others. Um, their, their products are sold in 50 countries. They're sold in hundreds of stores, including, or thousands of stores, including 138 company-owned stores. And we'll talk a little bit about how the re- retail industry is changing a bit, um, as well as obviously online is a huge, um, huge avenue of their sales. The Doug was raised by two high school educators, and I'm hoping that we get a chance to find out how that influenced his life. He graduated from UCSB. He is a gaucho, we're very proud to say. He earned his degree, his undergraduate degree in business economics. As you guys know, I really strive to bring people in that have been successful on all aspects of their life, not just making money and building businesses, but also giving back to the community. Doug has absolutely done that with his time and his money over the years. Uh, He's been very active for over two decades in the World Presidents Organization, as well as the Young Presidents Organization. When his children were school age, he, he, you know, he didn't just um, show up and pick them up after school. He was the president and the trustee of the foundations associated with the school, raising money, making sure that the school's um, financial needs were met. And he did that from 94 to 2000. And he's currently the president and chairman of the board of the Whale Beach Foundation. And he's been doing that since 1994. So he's been doing that for well over uh, 20 years. He is with us virtually tonight uh, from Australia where he currently resides. Um, But let's give him a warm welcome back to Santa Barbara. Welcome. Well, thanks again, Doug. We really appreciate it. My uh, pleasure. So I remember when you spoke, I I took some crazy notes. I had all these notes from when you spoke. Um, and one of the things I had written, one of the first things you said in my class was, and we weren't in this building. We are literally in the building that the Bank of America was in when it burned down. So you were, we were in a different classroom, and you said, um, I think the quote was, um, when the Bank of America building burnt down, I think you were a freshman, and you said that was a wake-up call for you. 
How did that impact the rest of your career here at UC Santa Barbara, if at all? What was that? Why was that an important moment? Well, um, you know, obviously being a freshman is my first time away from home. And I think really quite eye-opening is just how big the world was, how different things were, and the conflicts that were going on. Right. And I think uh, everybody in the whole community became involved. If you recall the first or the third term, the final spring term, uh, there were a lot of X100 classes. And basically you took classes up. One class I took was shutting down the draft board. But, but I think at that time we were all being ideal and there were different ways we were trying to make an impact on the world. And I think to me, one, I love the ocean and I was going, okay, I'm going to farm the ocean and feed the starving masses. Nice. Of course, later on, as I went through uh, school and about my junior year, I figured, okay, I can't see myself in a white smock looking in a microscope. I think, uh, what am I doing here? And uh, eventually I want to make money. And so I turned into business. Well, and, uh, well that, graduated that, business major. Yeah, that does it tells into my next question. So when you were here, you founded Deckers in 73, sort of formally or officially. But when you were here as a student, were you working on the idea already? Or was it something where you graduated and then you said, I don't want to take a job, I'm going to make a job? How did that transition from school to Deckers go? Uh, well, actually, the summer after we graduated in 73, my founding partner, Carl, Carl Locker and myself lived together, and he actually did support himself going through school, um, making sandals wow. and selling uh, Renaissance craft fairs, basically. Yep. And um, he, during our summer time when we were living together, he was running a production facility for another company down in Orange County and wanted to start out on his own. I was down there, wanted to go surfing. I had a trip to Hawaii. I said, hey, Carl, I love the sandals. Give me a sample. Let me see if I can sell them over there. Uh, so I went over in September to Hawaii, spent about a month over there, actually sold five stores. Uh, three of them paid us, and I went back about a year later and collected from the other two. But that's <laughs> how we started in business. Nice. So you, you mentioned that you were out there selling the shoes. You were, you were a hustler. I'm sure your partner was too, but you were a hustler driving up and down the coast, going to surf shops, you know, walking in with this product that you know, was new to them and, and getting them convinced enough to put it on the shelves. Um, what, so, so was that something you just knew you were going to do? Was that in your DNA? Or was that something you had to work through, force yourself to do it? What, and what lessons do you think or any tips or tricks on engaging with people could you share with young people? So a lot in that question, but just think about back when you were hustling and nobody had ever heard of your company. Yeah, what, what we basically did is we ran a little mail order surfer ad in Surfer Magazine in 74. And then I was surfing and I'd just drive up and down the coast, calling on the surf shops and actually putting up a copy of that ad at different telephone poles. Uh, was salesmanship in my DNA? No, I, I actually, I was originally a math major when I applied at UCSB. And so I'm more comfortable with numbers. But it, it was part of my lifestyle and talking to surfers was fine. I didn't mind it. And actually the, you know, just the passion for the product 
And uh, that and the fact that I'm working my own hours, I'm supporting my lifestyle of surfing, and that got me to overcome that fear of rejection, I guess it is, as being a salesman. Right. So, I mean, if I go a step further, what I learned from that, I, I learned if I could get them to voice their objections, then I could just deal with that on a rational way. Right. And um, I guess the final thing in salesmanship would be once you've made the sale, you have to be able to recognize when the guy's sold. So you shut up, quit trying to sell and ask for the order. Right. Yep. A lot of people, it takes them a long time to learn that, that part of selling. Because you get in that mode, you want to keep going. So you mentioned the Surfer Magazine ad. That was a pretty gutsy move to make for a small company. Did, did, did that generate leads in and of itself? Or was it that you used it when you went to the surf shops to get validation, to show them, hey, look, we're in Surfer Magazine? Well, it, it was validation, really. Back then, the surf industry was surf shops were surfboards, resin, and maybe some uh, fiberglass to fix the boards. This was pre the clothing stuff and, right. and pre leashes for those of you that surf. So yep. um, there wasn't much out there. So we ran the ad and, and what happened is people that come into the surf shops going, Hey, have you seen those flip flops? They look kind of cool. And then I'd follow in with them. We did make kind of an interesting mistake there uh, in the fact that our mail order ad retailed them at $8. We wholesaled them to the stores at $5 who wanted to charge $10. So there's a bit of confusion there. Right. And uh, it took me a while to learn how to properly do pricing. Little channel conflict. Yes. <laughs> Wait a minute, it's eight bucks. So that's funny that you were here at the same time that Zog was doing, because you mentioned resin, Zog was doing sex wax here in Santa Barbara. And he was doing the same thing right in the same time period, early 70s, driving up and down the coast with his sex wax in his van and selling it to individual stores? Because the industry, right. it was just so fragmented. Did you guys ever collaborate or ever work together? Um, not really too much. I mean, we ended up being a, across the street from each other down in Carpinteria for a while. Yep. But um, I think we were all pretty much doing our own things, going up and down. Um, I got involved with uh, Lightning Bolt as a licensee there early on, and so that um, we kind of went that direction. Right, okay, very cool. So I'll get ready for the, the first student's question in just one second. So let's fast forward, now it's, so you would 73, you started the company, 74, you ran the surfer ad, you're going up and down the coast, you're getting a little bit of traction. By July of 75, you had over 100 people gluing sandals. Um, was that when you were in Carpinteria? Were you still in the garage? Where, where, where were you at that point? Right. Um, actually, we, we had a little industrial space out on Hollister Avenue in Carpinteria. Okay. And, and I, I can't remember the exact location by 75, if we were down in Carp by then or still in Goleta. But um, by then, what we'd done is develop the actual Decker's product, which was tubular nylon used in uh, climbing harnesses that we attached to layers of multicolored rubber. Yep. that was used in wetsuits and, and basically made a water-compatible flip-flop that was indestructible. And that's how Deckers was actually, the name came from Hawaii. They called them Deckers because of the multi-layers of color. But we, yeah, by then, production, it, it was like we ran a lifestyle business and we were always trying 
to balance that production with the sales. And uh, it was pretty interesting because we employed surfers. So, of course, when the waves were good, everybody was surfing and not making sandals. So we'd fall behind in our orders. Um, I mean, it, it was an interesting time. I mean, they were making glue, you know, or, or gluing sandals. Everybody run out on their breaks, smoke a little pot, come back in. So things would go a little slower, you know. And, and what we did is we developed a, a piece rate um, to give them incentives for production. And, of course, like anything, you set it up and, you know, people can get around it. And we paid the same amount for making a size extra small, which is like a size five woman's shoe, is making an extra large, which was 12 men's. So by the end of the week, all we had on the shelves were extra smalls. Fortunately, we had an accountant, Carmel. They must have sold to a lot of Japanese tourists or something because they'd call up every Friday, say, whatever's on the shelves, put them on a, a Greyhound bus, get them there for Saturday morning in the weekend tourist draft. Wow. So, so you, at that point, were you literally s- selling everything you could make? Yes. Wow. Absolutely. I mean, now that's during the summer. You come the winter time, and basically we don't have any sales. Right. Okay. But in the summer, you got a bunch of stone surfers that are trying to make small shoes <laughs> so they can get back right. out there and surf. Excellent. All right. We'll take the first uh, student's question. Okay. Uh, in what ways did having your parents be high school educators help you achieve your goals? Like, what lessons did your parents give you that led you to where you are now? Okay. Um, well, I, I think a couple of things is my parents basically told me I could be successful at whatever I wanted to. All I had to do was apply myself, think creatively, and work hard. Um, so that I, I used throughout, um, definitely. Um, I think the other thing, too, is that um, my, my mom was a swim teacher. So I had the passion for the ocean, surfing early, and that, of course, influenced me throughout my life. And I think maybe the final thing was educators don't get paid a lot, but they knew which – I went to public school, and and they knew which school districts had the best education, and they're usually in the wealthier suburbs. So I was surrounded by a lot of people that had a lot more money than I did – and it might have given me a drive that I later found out from a professor uh, at UCSB, Dr. Andron, coined the phrase positive freedom of choice, having the, the ability to make any decision you want, not have to worry about the money. So that's something that I strive through throughout my career. Yep. Very good. So 1975, you've got 100 and some odd people working on piecemeal. And then you ended up connected, you'd already mentioned it, the Lightning Bolt clothing line. Was that your first move away from a lifestyle business? Or do you felt like at that time you were still running a lifestyle business and clothing just seemed like a natural add-on? Like what, when, when were you thinking, like, boom, this is going to go bigger? Well, I, actually, in Lightning Bolt, that was our first licensing exercise. And we made accessories not really the clothing part. Uh, um, later on, we brought in some of the Australian clothing for Lightning Bolt. But um, it was still for us, it was a lifestyle business that is supporting our lifestyle of surfing. I think when I really got um, 
serious and running it as a professional business would be in the mid to late 80s when I got married, started a family. We had four or 500 people working for us. And all of a sudden, it wasn't just my lifestyle that I had to support. I had the responsibility of the family and the families of all the employees. Yep. I mean, that's what I, that's where I always felt the pressure was the people that I helped recruit and promise that there was going to be a great business and a great place to work and then making sure that it really was and that they got their paychecks every two weeks. Right. That's the pressure. Uh, we'll take the next student's question. As an early co-founder of Deckers, was it hard to maintain your vision of the company when becoming public in 1993, or did this expansion allow you to gain the capital to further develop your product as you saw fit? So in 93, when you, or 83, sorry, when you went public, or 93. 93. Yeah, sorry, yeah. my fault. Um, how did that change the business? Were you able to keep that vision going, or did it, did it, did it morph the vision in a way you, you didn't intend? Well, it, it definitely helped the vision going. Um, at the time, we went public. It, it, was, it was one of the high points, I got to say, because I previously I had um, basically given uh, book value stock to a lot of the uh, employees. I think the employees owned about 30% of the business, and I had about 70 at the time we went public. And so all of a sudden, it created a lot of wealth. My receptionist could buy a new car. A lot of people put down payments on houses. Yep. Millionaires were made. It was you know, very satisfying in that respect. But, and we had a very successful IPO. Went out at 15, and I think it went to 22 the first day. But what it was was all based on the success of Teva, which was the brand that made up 98% of our sales, and we didn't own it. We were the licensee of uh, Teva. Right. So what we needed to do was we used the proceeds to really get away from our dependence on Teva, in other words, to diversify our branding and our product, as well as balance our seasonality. And, of course, that's when we went and bought up. So you mentioned um, Teva with Mark Thatcher. Uh, I know you've told the story a million times, but do you mind just telling us sort of that? Because I love that story of how you met him and saw what he was wearing and being a shoe person. You said, I think there's something here. And the fact that you worked with him and didn't try to go off and knock it off on your own. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of good aspects to that story, which I've almost told you the entire part of. Do you want to just tell us the story of how you actually met him? And Yeah, well, well Mark um, actually approached us. Oh, okay. uh, he was, at the time, he, he was a Colorado River guide, and he basically had solved the problem for a lot of the guides. They had issues with wearing footwear uh, going down the rapids of the Colorado. If they wore tennis shoes, it would, they get little rocks in there, their toes would shrivel up. It, would, it wasn't good. If they wore flip-flops, the rapids would take them down the river. So he put a back strap on one of the, our flip-flops and started selling them out of his um, uh, trunk to his fellow river guides. And, you know, he brought it to us and, and um, we said, gee, you know, that looks interesting. And because... I'm always one who liked authenticity. And here was Mark Thatcher, Colorado River guy, developing a product for he and his buddies. What a story, yeah. you know? And not only that, it was iconic product, and it was creating a new category 
that we coined sports sandals. And then, so we got together, we signed a license with him and he got together with my brother, Rick, who was running production at the time and one of our production supervisors. And together they developed what was called the universal strapping system. We were able to get it patented and that then just mushroomed the business. And uh, all of a sudden all the river guides were wearing them, uh, the outfitters, were um, telling the tour, you know, and all the tourists would come down the Grand Canyon would go, wow, this is what they're wearing. We need that. Outfitters were, were giving them recommended equipment to buy to bring on the trip. And then we would supply them with the sandals. And then it just grew from there. Yep. Yeah. Lots of good messages there. The authenticity is important. The fact that you collaborated with him didn't try to work around that idea. Is it true that he had a, a, a watch, like a Timex watch? Velcro watch band or something? Is that what he was using? Yeah, that's the, the first thing that he used for the initial one, and that was on a thong, one of the thong flip-flops. Yeah. I mean, I just think that's remarkable to see that and then really create a whole new genre of, of footwear. Uh, and they came back, what, a year or so ago. Everybody was wearing the old-school original. So I went from being way out of style to I was in style for about a week and a half, I think, last summer. Um, and I'm still out right. of style. No, they, it's neat, though, that they had a resurgence, the original, uh, the original shoe. Uh, we'll take uh, the next student's question. I was wondering what prompted you to have the vision of not just creating one product, but instead a multitude of brands under your company. Why not just focus on the growth of one? Well, um, a, f- a few things. I think number one is I'm, I was always out there in the market, and if I saw an opportunity, I like to jump on it, and it was hard to pass that up. But more than that, I think it was diversity. And I didn't want to have all my eggs in one basket. I had um, an early retired executive from Procter & Gamble, or not early, it was early in our uh, cycle, back in the 70s worked for us, in early 80s. And I liked that model that they had, where they had different brands that seemed separate, but they were under the Procter and Gamble label. So I like that model. Um, the other thing is I had a real bad experience in terms of the lightning bolt where we were a licensee right. and that almost put us out of business in 82. And I really didn't want to do that again. Well, let's talk about that for a second. So, so one part of the answer there is diversification. You know, so if the Teva brand go, goes out of style, you've got UGG, uh, you've got some of these other ones to fall back on. Um, going back to Lightning Bolt, so in, in 82, sales were about 3 million, which 2 million was the Lightning Bolt brand. Then the sales dropped below a million, and you had to lay off 14 of your 15 employees. Um, you know, things looked pretty dire at that point. Um, I know that you had borrowed some money from your mom. Was that like the moment where you said, I'm getting mom's money back, I'm not throwing it in the towel, or did you consider maybe I should just bail on this thing? I mean, you went down to 14 out of your 15 employees. That's pretty harsh. Yeah, well, we um, it, it definitely was probably one of the toughest times, and it really took me three years to kind of dig my way out of that, dealing with creditors and stuff. It was one of the toughest times going. Um, And I did. I had to lay off 14 of our 15. Those were office workers. I do think we had a couple of production people in the back that I kept. They made things. But I also needed to keep the receptionist answer the 
creditors who right. call and ask for money. Right. And uh, I also, if David, if you're watching, who was I owned a house with at the time, I want to apologize for for messing up your credit because I had to lay him off at the same time <laughs> that I lived with him. But it was it was tough. It also, yes, we should have thrown in the towel, but I did have my mom's money in it. Um, we used to kite checks to make payroll, and that and you could get a three or four day float doing that. Yep. Unfortunately, they one time saw or the banker caught the checks and uh, basically closed the accounts. The only one that had money in was my mom. And you're right; we should have thrown. We we basically should have liquidated and started over. But I couldn't. I couldn't really face my mom and tell her I lost her money. Right. So a- actually, that prompted me to buy my partner out because the business could not support both of us. Right. No, I think it's admirable. It's you know not that bankruptcy is easy, but you know you can wipe the slate clean and people lose their money and you move on. And you decided to take a tougher road, which obviously paid off immensely for everyone, including the creditors and all your employees. But um, certainly not an easy time for you at all. Right around that time, I'm not sure if it was before, I think it was slightly before, you outsourced your product for the first time and, and found out that the glue melted at 80 degrees. Did that cause you to, to not outsource again for years, or did you just say, okay, that was just one mistake? I'm... Well, that was definitely a mistake, and it was earlier. That would have been in the uh, late 70s sometime. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, and it, close to that 75, we just couldn't keep up with production. And uh, a guy came to me, the sand sample looked exactly like ours. Uh, we ordered a few containers that were on the water. First one hit, we're laying them out in the parking lot. And it's a, a nice day in Santa Barbara. And all of a sudden the sandals are just coming apart. And uh, yeah, we had to replace, we'd sold them all at a price uh-huh. that we had to boost up our domestic production then and replace those orders with product that actually cost us more to make than what we sold it for. Wow. So I think the lesson learned there was, you know, pay attention to the details, um, test product before you release it or bring it in and definitely have strict quality control measures. Right. So from then on, we did, uh, we did go back to outsourcing. uh, Although we, concentrated on our manufacturing for a few years. Um, we just made sure we did it right following that. Well, you kind of got lucky in, in the sense that you dodged a bullet where you didn't ship all those shoes out there, get them in stores, and then have people running around with their shoes falling apart. So at least... At That's least... true. We didn't have to recall them. We right. just never had to get them out there. Right, right, right. It could have been worse. Um, we'll take the next student's question. Um, my question is... Um, what cost-benefit analysis did you perform uh, when you plan to acquire Ugg? So, okay. did you hear that? Okay. So, you were saying what, what cost analysis did he go through when he acquired Ugg? Yeah. To, so, when you were thinking about that investment, how did you evaluate that? Well, first off, um, we were looking to balance our seasonality. We made a lot of sandals, but we needed winter business. So that was on one of our, on our short list. Um, the other thing that was good was it did give us diversification. It was an authentic brand. I'd known Brian for a while through the trade shows, and uh, we talked off and on about how 
you know, it would be compliment, it'd be a complimentary brand. Um, I'd also, as you've mentioned, I've been a member of YPO. I joined YPO uh, and I'd started learning about S-curves and demographics and strategic planning and applying that to the business. And he was in that early stage on the S-curve. And I, I like the story now as far as what analysis we did uh, financially, we figured if we could get it up to $50 million dollars, that it would be a success. Um, we bought it for, I think it was $12 million down and an earn out uh, ended up being about 16 million, which at the time actually wall street chastised us right, for it. said right. we paid him too much. Um, you know, and, and there was a point where we had a, a board meeting and strategic planning meeting. And the outcome of that was, that we should sell UG off and continue with another brand. We'd started Truckee as a cold weather boot and, and merge it with the Teva brand, which is our strong brand then. But I didn't like that idea. We kept with UG and uh, I think that was the right decision. Yeah, I'd say uh, years where you've sold more than 500 million in a single year. Um, so I, I had an Australian student in my class when you spoke way back in 09, and he made some comment about they were women's house shoes at the time or something that surfers had adopted so that they were a shoe that had been around for a while that weren't necessarily the hip happening shoe, but surfers wore them because of the, the warmth and the fleece and all of that. And to take that brand and then bring them here, you didn't have immediate success though, right? If, if I recall, uh, you got them here and then the breakthrough was really getting people to wear them in the paparazzi photos. Is that, is that, did that happen by happenstance or did you guys orchestrate that? Um, it, that was part of the plan to tell you the truth. We had, um, when, when we bought the product from Brian, who, who brought the UGG brand over from Australia, um, he, 80% of his sales were in Southern California. He didn't really have a marketing or distribution plan. He was selling Costco at the same time as selling Nordstrom right. and different surf shops. And he had two boots and two slippers. And we felt we could take it nationally and internationally, position it with luxury comfort because sheepskin itself was a, a, a commodity that was tough to come by and expensive. Right. And we cut out the distribution to Costco, went with Nordstrom, started advertising in Vogue magazine, O magazine. We had two firms that did product placement, one on the, um, East Coast and one on the West Coast um, that did that. Celebrities love the UGG boot because what they did is, you know, they're wearing whatever their costumes are on stage, but in between shoots and when they're off stage, they just, they put their UGG boots on and it would be so comfortable. Right, they right. just loved them. Then they started walking around with them. The paparazzi got it and it was great publicity and of course, Oprah loved hers, and um, I can't remember it was four or five times she selected them as or one version, one style that we did as uh, her holiday. Put it on the holiday gift list, wow. which really helped us go nationally and then eventually internationally. Wow, 
Well, you came a long way from an ad in Surfer Magazine, 74, right? <laughs> That's a pretty sophisticated marketing campaign. Um, we'll take uh, the next student's question. I have another UGG question, but um, so there has been some negative publicity on UGG and their use of sheepskin to make their shoes. How does Deckers rise above that kind of negative publicity to keep their loyal clients? And to be okay. clear, that was after you were, you've been gone for a while, but go ahead and any thoughts? Yeah, that's one? fine. I, I mean, I, I think I understand the question and some animal act or rights um, act advocates um, say, okay, sheepskin boots, you, you know, you have to slaughter the sheep in order to get it. But the sheep themselves are actually slaughtered for people to eat lamb. The sheepskins themselves are byproducts. And uh, we use a lot of it, um, really quite, quite the majority of it. However, um, what we have done, because we could use more, but um, we developed, or, or Decker's developed a, a product called Ub Pure, where they basically could just shear the sheep so it doesn't involve actually killing the sheep. Oh. And then it's a woven um, sheepskin, basically, is what it is. So it's the same feel of a sheepskin, but it's just using the sheared wool off of the sheep. And for people who you know, don't want to wear leather, which is basically what a sheepskin is, right. um, they can then go to the Ugg Pure. And it's in a lot of the product nowadays. So I want to go back. We sort of jumped to Ugg. That was the post-IPO. Just going back a little bit, you had that partner, longtime partner. You bought him out over a five-year period. Was that, and I know he went off to, to start another very successful company, QAD, which is a public company right. here in Santa Barbara. So he did fine. When you look back on it now, was it just absolutely the only outcome there, or do you think there's things you could have done differently, or do you wish you had done things differently to keep him? He's obviously a very talented member of the team, someone that you relied on. If, just looking back on it with all these years that have transpired, would you do anything differently in that relationship, or is that just the way you think it had to end? Well, I, I think partnerships are, are always interesting anyway because – you have two people pulling the strings on the same company. Um, Carl and I had a great partnership because I was the outside guy. I did the selling, identifying the product, did the marketing. He was an engineer by background from UCSB, and um, he liked efficiency, so production and administration. That was his forte. Mm -hmm. By the time we got to... Um, 1982, there just wasn't enough money to support the two of us. And he was, uh, computing was just starting. And he and his, I don't know if they're actually married. I'd have to go back and see if they're actually married at the time or not. Yes, they were. And um, they uh, formed QAD, which uh, did uh, an ERP program whose beta was for Decker's. And oh, nice. he went and worked with, with her. And, yeah, it was an interesting buyout because I, I'd pay him monthly over a five-year term because we didn't have any money in Deckers. And um, Pam would take the checks and deposit them in a bank account. And at the end of the five years when I gave him the final check, she took all that money and went and bought him a Porsche. Nice. So that's about what is as much as he got on the buyout. 
But it's funny because QAD's gone on, been very successful. We laugh about it because prior to, we go, we both got successful after splitting and we'd been successful before, but we'd lost it and been successful and lost it. Right, right. No, and it's good that you guys maintain that relationship. And, you know, sometimes those, the dissolution of a partnership means the dissolution of a friendship. So it's good that you guys have kept that going. And Pam is, um, you know, co-founder of that business, and she's, you know, she's been a huge player, run that business for many, many years, public company right. here in Santa Barbara, um, which oddly enough isn't that well known here, but is known right outside of Santa Barbara, I think probably even uh, to a greater extent. So just getting a little bit more on Uggs and your marketing, you kind of touched upon it with the paparazzi, but do you have comments on general, the strategy you guys had with the alpha consumer the consumer that um, either they had their opinion leader as a celebrity might, or maybe they're just maybe they're a, a surfer or somebody that can that can move the brand a little bit that way. How did you guys identify those people early on, and then how did you try to cultivate those relationships to augment the marketing? Well, um, I believe with every brand there is the alpha consumer, and when I talk about authentic brands, I used to coin the phrase end user designers, like Mark Thatcher River guy developing a sandal for he and his peer group. Right. So the alpha consumer is the person that, who is actually the one who um, they have a need that is being fulfilled that wasn't being fulfilled before. And because they are a celebrity or they are looked up to in the community. It's like, like surfers, you know, that's why you have all these sponsored pro surfers because anybody in the surf community looks like them, wants to surf like them. Right. And we felt with UGG that the alpha consumer was the celebrity because we were targeting more of a fashion market and really trying to take it from being a surf boot to going after that young mom who's dropping her kids off at a private school in a Range Rover and um, could afford to buy a luxury boot. Very nice. We'll take the next student question. Looking back at when you first started, what is one piece of advice that you'd give to yourself as you were still working from your garage? Um. I, I would say persevere with your passion. Do what you like. Do what you want. Um, don't listen to the naysayers and really carry on. If you've got a dream, there is a way. To, I firmly believe there's a way to fulfill it and a vision and, you know, ways to overcome that and just keep at it and uh, try. Keep trying things. I, I mean, you'll make mistakes. Learn from your mistakes. And... I've always learned more from my mistakes than our successes. Yeah, for sure. Now, I think if you look at your story, I mean, you were tenacious, you were persistent, you could have thrown the towel in a couple different times, and you didn't. Uh, and speaking of being tenacious, you sort of pulled a Steve Jobs, where you, you left the company, and then you came back to the company. In 98, the, the stock was trading at like two bucks a share, basically, Years later, after you had done your hard work, it got up to, I think, 163 or something was the, was the peak. Tell us about that turnaround. I mean, that must have been hard for you. You thought you were maybe done, and you had to come back in, make a lot of changes. How did, how did you pull that off, and was that satisfying, or did you just feel like you, you just had to do it? 
Well, I think um, a couple of things. Um, I've been trying to get out of the business and find my replacement. Um, and I had a couple of times when I, I didn't know exactly what I needed in that person and maybe made some wrong decisions and stepped back. But one of the decisions that I had been instrumental in uh, that was a major mistake was in 95 when we bought UGG, there was also a sports sandal shakeout, which Nike had entered the market as our competitor. There was a shakeout. It's classic in the S-curve 50% of the way through the development. But anyway, that happened. We had UGG. We also had Simple as our third brand then. It was actually our number two brand. UGG was our number three brand. And we centralized our management. In other words, we blended the sales forces, looking for economies of scale, right. uh, the design teams, the marketing teams. But, but what happened in all of that was the salesmen started selling what was easy to sell. The products started looking alike in each of the brands. The marketing messages were blurred, and it, we just stagnated. And that's what resulted in our first red ink year since I want to say back in the early eighties and uh, yeah, being talked about being delisted. So in early 99 or as basically late 98, the board gave me an ultimatum and basically said, either you get in and fix this or we'll find somebody to do it. I go, okay, moved in. And then what we did is we reorganized the company by brand. Each brand had its own president. That's when we brought in, or Connie Ridgway had been running sales for us and put her in charge of being president of Bug. And then um, own, each brand had its own marketing plan, its own product development team, its own sales team, its own business plan, and was really run independently. So we decentralized the management. And that was the key. And then I look at, we talked about the strategies Connie employed with building up to where, you know, I think it's a billion and a half in sales now. Um, But uh, that was, to me, UGG was executing all of the things we'd learned from the mistakes we'd made in the previous 20 years. Right, right. Well, I want to end on a question. It might be it might be a hard one to answer. It might be an easy one to answer for you. You okay. you know you had this long career. You had to come back in, fix the company again. You finally were able to pull the plug and and go to Australia and do surfing. I know you're involved with the Whale Beach Foundation, but what what are you? Did you do you find it challenging to find meaning in life right now, or are you just you know is the dream what it what everyone thinks it is when they look at you and they say the guy lives in Australia and he surfs every day and that's the life I want to live? What, what, where's the, where does reality meet the dream? Well, I I think for some people they can retire. I've known other people that haven't and they get right back into it. Uh, myself, I'm very satisfied in pursuing that endless summer wave, so to speak. Nice. But I've also, in in starting my business so early, I now appreciate family time. Um, I love traveling, and, and I've got my kids spread out. They're still in California, and, and we um, I've got one over here and siblings over there. And I love the travel bit. My wife and I travel a lot. Um, I do support educational programs 
I, I believe if you can just make an impact with one person, they can go on and impact another 10 and yep. it can just snowball from there. So yep. I am involved there. I do a bit of mentoring with students and advising with entrepreneurs and stuff like that. Um, and then again, my own personal goal is to be the first 100-year-old surfer. All right. <laughs> I like that goal. <laughs> on that note, that's a good note to end on. Thank you so much, Doug. Okay. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.